Take a Bible. We're going to look at John 21. We've read it. We're going to work our way through the passage this morning. There are notes in your bulletin. You can track along with the message. We've come to the end. When we come to the end of a sermon series, especially one through a a book of the Bible, and we've started in the beginning and we've worked all the way through it, my mind often goes to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 8 that says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, which means this morning will be better than when we started, and unfortunately this morning will probably be better than next week when we start something new. So milk this morning for all that it's worth. We're at the end of John's gospel, and this last section of John centers on three people. Jesus, Peter, and John. Jesus and Peter are fairly obvious. Jesus is there. He's questioning. He's talking. He's uh, speaking about the future. Peter is there. He's referred to Simon, the son of John. John is also there, and he's referred to in verse 20 as this one that Peter looks back, and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following at a distance. He's mentioned in verse 22 and 23 is this one that if he is going to live until I return, what is that to you? And there's this rumor that develops about whether or not he's going to die before Jesus comes back. And in verse 20, he's the one referenced, he leaned back against Jesus at the supper, at the last supper, the Lord's supper, and he asked a question about who would betray Jesus. Verse 24, he's the one bearing witness about these things. This beloved disciple is John the Apostle, John the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. And you've got these three men in this story, Jesus, Peter, and John. John, doing the writing, is describing, most theologians agree with this, Peter's, we'll put it in quotes, reinstatement. It's all sort of hinged on what has come before in Peter's life. You'll remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, this is in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus predicted that he would be betrayed, and Peter spoke up, and Peter said, Jesus, even if all of the rest of these guys turn on you, I won't. That was a comparative statement. He was boasting. He was bragging. He was essentially saying, Jesus, we all know Thomas is a little bit flaky. And so if Thomas ditches on you or if James ditches on you or if Peter gets scared, I just want you to know that I will not. In the Gospel of John, in this same instance, Peter pipes up and John tells us that Peter says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. It's sort of an ironic statement to come out of Peter's mouth because just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had explained that the good shepherd was going to lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter, and here's Peter boasting and bragging, I would be willing to lay down my life for you, Jesus. You also remember John 18 where Peter is warming himself beside a charcoal fire And three times he denies that he knows Jesus or that he's a disciple of Jesus. Jesus in the garden has just uttered the phrase, I am. And Peter twice says, I am not one of his disciples. I am not one of his disciples. Now, in this instance, John 21 verse 9 
Jesus is waiting for the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he has prepared a charcoal fire. That's a linguistic link. You only read about charcoal fires twice in the Gospel of John. Once when Peter denies Jesus, and here in this story where Jesus is reinstating Peter. It's a connection that John wants you to see so that you understand these two things are connected. It's something you shouldn't miss. Now, here's something that we need to be careful about, just a a word of caution about vocabulary words. We should be careful when interpreting the different words that John uses for love. There's different Greek words used for love. In English, it's just love, love, love all the way through, but there's different words in the Greek. And there's different Greek words used for sheep, two different words. And most English translations show the difference in sheep. And maybe in your version, one says lambs and one says sheep, or they make some distinction there. The one that gets most of the attention when we talk about this story is the fact that Jesus uses different words for love when he's talking to Peter and asking Peter about their relationship. There was a book written in 1960 by a guy named C.S. Lewis. You know that I like C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Four Loves. And the book is based on this idea that in the Greek language, there are four words that we would translate into English as love. And this particular Greek word, Lewis says, has a a specific emphasis, and this word has a different emphasis, and this third one a different one, and the fourth one something completely different. Lewis's book popularized this idea. You may have heard it at some point that these four words for love, sometimes it's said, have completely different meanings, that they don't even overlap in their meaning at all. And it's true. There are four different Greek words for love, and they do have different emphases. It's also true that those meanings overlap. Uh, The meanings of these words are not just rigid and completely separate. Sometimes they they can function essentially as synonyms for each other. If you study the history of the interpretation of this passage, for about 1,700 years, Bible scholars said that the different words for love don't really have a different emphasis. It's just Hebrew parallelism. It's just piling up terms to say the exact same thing. It's done all throughout the Old Testament in the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, and they think that's what's going on here. But Lewis popularizes this idea that the words might mean something different. So here's the words. I'll just put them up on the screen. One verb for love is agapao, and one verb for love in Greek is phileo. All I want to point out to you is that you need to be careful because both of those verbs in the Gospel of John are used to describe John as the beloved disciple. Both are used to say the same thing about John. Both of those verbs are used inside of the same chapter to say that Jesus loved Lazarus. And both of those verbs are used inside the Gospel of John to say that God the Father loves God the Son. And in all of those instances, they just mean love. There's not really a distinction between the two. So what I'm saying to you in John 21 is, if there's a distinction between these terms, just be careful. Maybe John uses the different terms, Jesus uses the different terms to bring out a specific emphasis. But maybe he's just piling up the terms for emphasis, something that is done throughout the Old Testament scriptures. One more word of caution, and Maybe this is more for me, but I'm 
have a hunch that some of you have been trained to think like I was trained to thought. In this passage, verse 20 suggests that the scene did not play out with rapid-fire questions around the campfire. I don't know why, but that's how I've always in my mind pictured this playing out. Jesus fixed the breakfast around the charcoal fire. They come in from the shore. They're sitting around. And at some point in the discussion, while they're all sitting there, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Just three in a row. That's how I pictured this for most of my life. But verse 20 says that after the questions, Peter turns around and he sees John walking behind them, and he asks a question about John. So verse 20 is telling you that they've been walking, maybe along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe it didn't just happen right there around this fire where they ate breakfast. And maybe John has left out parts of the story, and there was conversation between these questions. Maybe it wasn't one, two, three questions right in a row. Maybe they were spaced out as part of a longer conversation. Just something I want you to think about, about how this story actually played out. However you end up picturing it, this is a story that has captivated people's attention and imagination. This is a a popular, well-known story about the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. The big idea is really clear And it's really important for all of us in the room this morning. It's that God uses broken people who love Jesus and will follow Jesus. That is good news for me. It's good news for you. It was good news for Peter. It was good news for John. Let's just take a minute to think about Peter and John and their relationship with Jesus. You know that John was the guy who just a few months earlier... He looked at Jesus when they had been rejected in a village. This village did not want to hear what Jesus had to say. They left the village and John looked at Jesus with his brother and said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to blow these people up? Jesus said, John, that's ridiculous. He got a nickname out of it. It's always good to give people nicknames. But he said, John, no, no, a million no's, no. Peter, we're very familiar with, this link with the charcoal fire reminds us of Peter denying Jesus, calling down curses on himself, insisting that he was not a disciple of Jesus. He did not know Jesus. And Peter's denials were very spectacular. They were very public. But can we just remind ourselves that if you read the story carefully, John was standing right next to Peter when he made those denials. There's no record of John saying, well, if you're too scared to admit it, I'll admit it. John wasn't wearing his Emmanuel t-shirt on that day. I'm a proud follower of Jesus. John didn't get up on a step stool with a megaphone and let everyone in the courtyard know that he was a, a follower of Jesus. He just stayed silent and he didn't say anything. These two men were flawed. They were broken. They had sinned against Jesus. And in this passage, we're reminded that the hope of the gospel is not only hope that God will take dead sinners and bring them to life, but it's that God would actually use broken, sinful people 
when they love Jesus and when they're willing to follow Jesus. One of my favorite preachers is dead now. His name's James Montgomery Boyce. He died in the year 2000. He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 until he died in the year 2000. He preached through the Gospel of John. We have spent three years and I believe 62 sermons. He spent eight years and 270 sermons. So he broke it out a little bit more than we have. And in his very last message, I just want to share with you one of the things that he said at the opening when he preached on this passage. I'll put it up on the screen. He said, if each of us knew how sinful we really are, we would not be so shocked or subdued by our failures. But most of us do not know the depths of our own depravity, so we are shocked, particularly by a fall into serious moral sin or by our surprising ability to deny Jesus Christ. When we sin in such ways, it is a tactic of the devil to argue. This is what the devil argues, that having sinned, we have forfeited our chance for a successful and happy Christian life. We might as well go on sinning. Like most of the devil's statements, this is untrue. Though we sin, we have nevertheless not forfeited our chance for a full Christian life, nor dare we go on sinning. Instead, the Christian way is that of repentance and restoration. That's hope. That's not just hope that someday when we die, we get to go to heaven. That's part of the, the hope of the gospel. But this is part of the gospel hope is that God will use in his church and in his kingdom and in the world, he will use broken, sinful people who have failed him in the past. He will use those people when they love Jesus and they're willing to follow him. Let's break this story down into pieces. Let's talk about Jesus and Peter. This is verse 15 to verse 19. Look at the first question that Jesus asked Peter. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? To understand that verse, you've got to make a decision about what the these are. What are the these that Peter is being questioned about? Do you love me more than these? There's a group of Bible scholars, a small minority, that say the these are Peter's boat and his nets and his fishing gear and the 153 fish and, and all the rest. These are the people who say Peter going fishing on this morning was a, a sinful thing. It was a betrayal. It was Peter turning back to his old life and not following Jesus anymore. And Jesus shows up and he's now asking Peter, Peter, what's it gonna be? Fishing, your livelihood, your career, or me as a disciple? Now, if you were here last week, you know that I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think it was sinful. I don't think it was a betrayal for Peter to go fishing. So the second option, the more commonly argued option is that Jesus is looking at Peter and he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? Do you love me more than your brother Andrew loves me? Do you love me more than John loves me? Do you love me more than Bartholomew loves me? And you say, why would Jesus ask Peter such a question? Why would he ask Peter something like that? It's because that's what Peter has been claiming for himself. Peter has said to Jesus, right, pride goes before a fall, Jesus, 
if all the rest of them betray you, you can count on me. You and me got something special that they don't have. I will never turn my back on you. Jesus, I will lay down my life for you if I have to. And Jesus puts it to him pretty bluntly and he says, Peter, what do you think? Do you love me? more than these guys, and the most remarkable thing happens. It's maybe the most remarkable thing in the whole gospel of John. Peter bites his tongue, and he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't answer the question. The question is, Peter, do you love me more than these, these people, these men? Are you willing to say what you said earlier? Do you love me more than these? And Peter will not say it. He simply says, no comparison, no self-promotion, no self-aggrandizement, no boasting, no pride, no none of it. He says, Jesus, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Verse 16, Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17 he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, there's a note, Peter was grieved. He was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't offended. He wasn't put off by the question. He didn't think that it was a cheap shot. He didn't think that it was inappropriate. He didn't think that it was mean or a bully move. He was grieved, and he was grieved over his sin. And he's seeing, maybe for the first time in weeks, very, very clearly just how depraved he is. Boyce is right. We tend to not see very clearly just how sinful we are. And Peter sees it in this moment, and he's grieved, and he's convicted and he knows that his sin is wrong. He's not just sorry he got caught. He's sorry because it was wrong and it was sinful to deny the Lord Jesus. He doesn't boast in himself. He just says, Jesus, you know everything. I can't fool you. You know everything. And you know that I love you. I want you to just take one moment to think about the mercy and the kindness and the grace of Jesus in this moment. Peter has done something horrendous, doubly horrendous because he had promised over and over and over again that he would not do it, and he did it, and he's grieved about it, and Jesus does not say, Peter, you're the worst. P Peter, I've had it with you. He doesn't say, Peter, you should have known better. There's no piling on. There's no lengthy lecture. There's no expectation that Peter would grovel. There's no life of penance. He doesn't ask Peter to pay him back. He doesn't expect Peter to have every answer. He doesn't expect Peter to be omnicompetent. He just says, Peter, what I need to know, this is all that I need to know. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's it. And they're square. No punishment. No life of penance in getting even. Just forgiveness and grace. How many people 
attend a church service on a Sunday morning and attend with the mindset that they owe God, that they need to get even with God, that they've got to get square with God, and that means they need to do something. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. Jesus, dying on the cross, said, it's finished. I paid the price. I I paid the penalty. I satisfied the Father's wrath. The question before you is, do you love Jesus? That's all that he's asking. That's all that he asked Peter. He told Peter, you're going to feed my sheep. He did not say, you're going to build my church. He said, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to tend to the flock. You're going to serve a a pastoral role, right? All of that brings us to the, the plan that Jesus had for Peter's life. It involved preaching and martyrdom. Peter, you're going to feed the sheep. You're going to tend the flock. You're going to feed the lambs. You're going to take my word and you're going to declare it to my people. Feed them, Peter. And then he says, at the end of your life, you will be stretched out. Your hands will be stretched out. That's sort of a, an idiomatic phrase that means crucified. He's telling Peter, you're going to die just like I died. You'll be stretched out. And John puts the note in there that says he's telling Peter the way that he would die, the way that he would glorify him in death. By the time John wrote those words, it had happened. Peter was crucified in Rome at the order of Nero. That was the plan Jesus had for his life. You may look at that and say, that's not a great plan. Jesus wasn't taking your suggestion when he made the plan. He wasn't taking our input. He's just telling Peter, this is the plan. You're going to preach, you're going to teach, you're going to proclaim the truth of the gospel, and then at the end, you're going to die a martyr's death. That was the plan that he had for Peter. Now let's talk about John. This is verse 20 to 25, Jesus and John. There is only one story in the New Testament about one of the apostles being killed. It's not Peter. It's actually James, the brother of John. It's in Acts 12. One of the Herods arrests James, and he puts him to death with the sword, which probably means he beheaded him. All of the other deaths of the apostles are not told on the pages of the New Testament. We're just reliant on church history, and church history and tradition says that all of them, after James, all of them, to a man, died because they were talking to people about Jesus and refused to stop talking about Jesus. All of them except John. All of them except John. Here was the plan for John's life, witnessing and exile. Witnessing to the truth about Jesus and exile. John lived to be an old man. And some of you say, hey, sign me up for that plan. Long life. Well, he was the only one that knew what it was like to have a sore back as an old man. To have his eyesight go out maybe and he couldn't see very clearly because of age. He was the guy that attended all the funerals for his best friends. There's grief in that. There's sorrow in that. He's the man who took care of Jesus' mother, tradition tells us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's the man, tradition tells us, who pastored the church in Ephesus for a time. He's the man that wrote five books in our New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. It's one of the ways that he witnessed to the truth 
about Jesus, the truth of the gospel. And at the end of his life, he was exiled to an island all by himself because he refused to stop talking about Jesus. That was the plan for his life. And Jesus lays it out right here. It's exactly what happened. There's this funny detail about verse 22 about whether or not he would die. Sort of tradition gets built up over time and John lived long enough to hear his own bad press, his own uh, stories and rumors about his life. And he says, look, there's this tradition that he wasn't going to die, that John wouldn't die before Jesus came back, that he wouldn't taste death. And you see it in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? He says to Peter, listen to what he says to Peter, you follow me. So it doesn't take Peter long to switch back to old Peter and he starts talking too much. Well, if I'm going to die and have my hands stretched out, what about John? Is he going to have his hands stretched out? And Jesus basically says to Peter, Peter, mind your own business. That's between me and John. That's not between me and you. What does that matter to you? Peter, follow me. One commentator makes the application like this. Let a man serve Christ where Christ has set him. It's a strange thing that most of us as Christians tend to wish we were set in a different place and could serve the Lord in a different way. We just are prone as humans to play a comparison game and to look at other people and to wish that their plan was our plan. People who know that their life is going to be cut short and they're not going to live to old age often find themselves saying, man, I wish I, wish I had more time. I wish I had more years. Guess what? Those who live up into their 80s, 90s, 100s, they often say, why am I still here? Why did, why did God give me this much time? What am I doing here? I, how, how can I be useful? We're looking at the other's plan, wishing it was ours instead of just embracing the plan that the Lord has for us. Those who serve the Lord behind the scenes, quietly, without much recognition, often find themselves thinking, man, I wish I could get a little bit of recognition for all the things that I'm doing for the Lord. And guess what? Those who are often standing up front often find themselves thinking, I just wish I could recede back into the limelight or out of the limelight into the background and not be at the forefront. There's this strange thing we do where we, we wish that we were set in a different place and we wish that we were called to serve the Lord Jesus in a different way. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, verse 19, follow me. That's all that I need you to do, Peter. You've affirmed your love, now I just need you to follow me. Peter has questions about that and Jesus says, Peter, that is not your concern. Follow me. Let a man, let a woman, let a boy, let a girl, let a teenager serve Christ where Christ has set them. That brings us to you and me. What do we do with all of this? How do we apply this final section of John? How do we apply the book as a whole to our lives? I want to make a few suggestions here. Number one, you need to wrestle with this question. Will you believe? Will I believe? Will you believe the good news about Jesus? It is the sole solitary reason that John wrote this story, that he wrote this gospel that we've spent years 
studying. And we'll, we'll look at it one more time. John 20, 30 to 31 says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Will you believe the good news about Jesus? Will you believe it? Will you believe that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the word who took on flesh, that he was virgin born? Will you believe that he's the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world? Will you believe that he's the one seeking people to worship the Father in spirit and truth? He's the light of the world. He's living water. He's the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Will you believe the truth about Jesus? All of those questions involve some measure of intellect and thinking in your mind. Will you hear the truth about Jesus and accept it? But that's not all there is to believing, and John reminds us of that in this passage. Believing in Jesus also includes loving Jesus is not just a cerebral academic exercise. The question put to Peter is not a, a detailed systematic theology exam breaking out the character and the nature of God. It's a very simple question. Peter, do you love me? Question two, do you love me? Question three, do you love me? Yes, you need to know some things about Jesus. You need to know who he is. You need to know what he's accomplished. But believing in Jesus is more than just an intellectual activity. It's a matter of the heart. And the, the question is, do you believe, do you have a heart that loves Jesus? Question two. You need to wrestle with the question, will I follow Will you follow Jesus? Verse 19, Peter, follow me. Verse 22, Peter, follow me. For Peter, this is getting complicated. When Jesus was on the earth, all Peter had to do was literally follow. We're going to a wedding in Cana, right behind you. We're going to Jerusalem for the Passover, right behind you. We're going back to Galilee. Let's go. Now Jesus is leaving, and he's still saying to Peter, Peter, follow me. It's the same question you and I have to wrestle with. We live 2,000 years later. We live on the other side of the world. How in the world do you follow Jesus? Where is he for us to follow him? It doesn't look like it looked for Peter and John and James and Andrew and the first group of disciples while Jesus was on the earth. This is what it looks like according to Jesus himself. Number one, following Jesus involves repentance. Repentance. Jesus himself explained this in the Gospel of Luke chapter nine. He lays it out like this. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Going after Jesus, following Jesus, means taking up a cross and dying to sin and self. That's repentance. 
It's not just turning towards Jesus in belief and faith, but it's also turning from self and turning from sin. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Secondly, following Jesus includes his church. His church. Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He did not send Peter to build it, or James, or John, or anyone else. He said, I will build it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In this passage, what he's telling Peter is, you're going to have a role to play. You're not the builder, but you are the shepherd. You're going to feed my people. Peter had a role to play in the church. You have a role to play in the church. There is no New Testament category for someone who would say, I'm turning from sin, I'm trusting in Jesus, but I want nothing to do with his church. Not a biblical category on any level. Following Jesus involves repentance, it involves his church. Thirdly, following Jesus includes witnessing, talking, telling people the good news about Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look at Acts 1.8. Just a few days later, Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He promised to be with his disciples through the person of the Holy Spirit and he promised to empower them as they went out to talk about Jesus through the person of the Holy Spirit. He promises the same thing for you, to empower you through his Spirit as you talk to people about Jesus. One of the things I love here in the Bible is this connection between the end of John and the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, before you try to correct me, I know that John wrote John and Luke wrote Acts, two different guys. I know that Luke, who wrote Acts, did not write John. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. And I know that Luke gets lumped in with Matthew and Mark. They're the synoptic gospels. They see the story together. I know all of that. I know that when John wrote his gospel, the New Testament had not been compiled as a collection yet. And John, when he wrote the last verse of his gospel, I know that he wasn't thinking about the first verse of Luke. I know all that. But in the providence of God, in our scriptures, John is followed by Acts. And I just want you to see the connection. John chapter 21, verse 25, says there were also many other things that Jesus did. John is looking back and he's saying, this was his life, this was his death, this was his resurrection. These are the things that he did, past tense. Now look at Acts 1.1, the very next verse in the Bible. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Those are two different ideas. It's two different emphases. John is saying these are the things that he did. Luke is reminding us he's just getting started. He's just beginning to work. He's not done. He has not abandoned his people and he has not finished working through his people. And that first verse in Acts, Acts 1, 1, all that Jesus began to do reminds us that he's still doing. How? It's the big idea of our passage, the big idea of the previous section of the Bible. 
Jesus uses broken people who love him and who will follow him. He's done some things. They're accomplished. He is still doing things today, and he desires you to be a part of that. Will you believe? Will you follow?